0: I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favourites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight we are continuing with our penultimate episode of Anne of Avonlea. But before we begin, take a moment here to relax from the day, breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, again in and out. And allow your eyes to drift close as you feel your breath even out to a steady rhythm Bring your left hand to rest gently on your heart and lay your right hand on your belly. Feel your chest expand as you inhale two, three, four, five, and exhale two, three, four, five. Repeat this in, two, three, four, five, and out, two, three, four, five. Keep focusing on the breath as it flows in through your nose and out through your mouth. Imagine you're breathing in all the positive energy around you. Allow your mind to drift briefly to what that feels like. Breathe out all your worries and doubts. Release any tension you might be carrying from the day. Keep following your breath in and out, shifting your focus back to the sound of my voice as I recap our last episode. Previously, Anne agreed with Marilla that she would resign as a teacher and go to college at Redmond after summer along with Gilbert. Marilla told her she wanted to invite Mrs. Rachel Lynde to live at Green Gables, since Mr. Lynde passed away and their debts were too high to keep the farm. Mrs. Lynde was grateful and arrangements were made, the two women very clear on the roles each would play, knowing deep down they would get along just fine, despite the opinions of the rest of the village. Diana was sad to hear the news of Anne's impending departure, but pleased overall for her new adventure. Anne's pupils were distraught, none more so than Paul Irving. Anne took Paul to Echo Lodge again to see Miss Lavender. Tonight, we pick back up with them still there, with Miss Lavender and Charlotte IV so lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 27 An Afternoon at the Stone House Continued After lunch, they went back to the garden, where Paul made the acquaintances of the Echoes, to his wonder and delight, while Anne and Miss Lavender sat on the stone bench under the poplar and talked. So you are going away in the fall, said Miss Lavender wistfully. I ought to be glad for your sake, Anne. I'm horribly, selfishly sorry. I shall miss you so much. Sometimes I think it is of no use to make friends. They only go out of your life after a while and leave a hurt that is worse than the emptiness before they came. That sounds like something Miss Eliza Andrews might say, but never Miss Lavender, said Anne. Nothing is worse than emptiness, and I'm not going out of your life." are such things as letters and vacations. Tourist, I'm afraid you're looking a little pale and tired. Paul stood on the dike, where he had been making noises diligently, not all of them melodious in the making, but all coming back, transmuted to the very gold and silver of sound by the tiny fairy alchemists over the river. Miss Lavender made an impatient movement with her pretty hands. I'm just tired of everything, even of the echoes. There's nothing in my life but echoes. Echoes of lost hopes and dreams and joys. They're beautiful and mocking Oh, it's horrid of me to talk like this when I have company. It's just that I'm getting old and it doesn't agree with me. I know I'll be fearfully cranky by the time I'm sixty, but perhaps all I need is a course of blue pills. At this moment, Charlotte IV, who had disappeared after lunch, returned and announced that the northeast corner of Mr. John Kimball's pasture was red with early strawberries, and wouldn't Miss Shirley like to go and pick some? Early strawberries for tea, exclaimed Miss Lavender. Oh, I'm not so old as I thought, and I don't need a single blue pill. Girls, when you come back with your strawberries, we'll have tea out here under the silver poplar. I'll have it all ready for you with homegrown cream. Anne and Charlotte IV accordingly betook themselves back to Mr. Kimball's pasture, a green, remote place where the air was as soft as velvet and fragrant as a bed of violets and golden as amber. Ah, oh, Isn't it sweet and fresh back here? breathed Anne. I just feel as if I were drinking in the sunshine. Yes, Mum, so do I. It's just exactly how I feel too, Mum, agreed Charlotte IV, who would have said precisely the same thing if Anne had remarked that she felt like a pelican of the wilderness. Always after Anne had visited Echo Lodge, Charlotte IV mounted to her little room over the kitchen and tried before her looking glass to speak and look and move like Anne. Charlotta could never flatter herself that she quite succeeded, but practice makes perfect, as Charlotte had learnt at school, and she fondly hoped that in time she might catch the trick of that dainty uplift of chin. That quick, starry outflashing of eyes. That fashion of walking as if you were a bow, swaying in the wind. seemed so easy when you watched Anne. Charlotte IV admired Anne wholeheartedly. It was not that she thought her so very handsome. Diana Barry's beauty of crimson cheek and black curls was much more to Charlotte Fourth's taste than Anne's moonshine charm of luminous grey eyes and the pale, ever-changing roses of her cheeks. But I'd rather look like you than be pretty, she told Anne sincerely. Anne laughed, sipped the honey from the tribute, and cast away the sting, She was used to taking her compliments mixed. Public opinion never agreed on Anne's looks. People who had heard her called handsome met her and were disappointed. People who had heard her called plain saw her and wondered where other people's eyes were. Anne herself would never believe that she had any claim to beauty. When she looked in the glass... All she saw was a little pale face with seven freckles on the nose thereof. Her mirror never revealed to her the elusive, ever-varying play of feeling that came and went over her features like a rosy, illuminating flame or the charm of dream and laughter alternating in her big eyes. While Anne was not beautiful, in any strictly defined sense of the word. She possessed a certain evasive charm and distinction of appearance that left beholders with a pleasurable sense of satisfaction in that softly rounded girlhood of hers with all its strongly felt potentialities. Those who knew Anne best of all felt without realizing that they felt it that her greatest attraction was the aura of possibility surrounding her, the power of future development that was in her. She seemed to walk in an atmosphere of things about to happen. As they picked, Charlotte IV confided to Anne her fears regarding Miss Lavender, the warm-hearted little handmaiden was honestly worried over her adored mistress's condition. "'Miss Lavender isn't well, Miss Shirley, Mum. I'm sure she isn't, though she never complains. She hasn't seemed like herself a long while, Mum. Not since that day you and Paula were here together before. I feel sure she caught cold that night, Mum. After you and him had gone, she went out and walked in the garden.' long after dark, with nothing but a little shawl on her. There was a lot of snow on the walks. I feel she got a chill. Ever since then, I've noticed her acting tired and lonesome-like. She don't seem to take an interest in anything, Mum. She never pretends company's coming, nor fixes up for it, nor nothing. It's only when you come she seems to jerk up a bit, Mum. And the worst sign of all, Miss Shirley Mum. Charlotte IV lowered her voice, as if she were about to tell some exceedingly weird and awful symptom indeed. It's that she never gets cross now when I breaks things. Why, Miss Shirley Mum, yesterday, I broke her green and yellow bowl that always stood on the bookcase. Her grandmother brought it out from England, and Miss Lavender was awful choice of it I was dusting it just as careful Miss Shirley mum and it slipped out so fashion afore I could grab hold of it and it broke into about 40 million pieces I tell you I was so sorry and scared I thought Miss Lavender would scold me awful mum and I'd rather she had than take it the way she did she'd just come in and hardly looked at it and said it's no matter Charlotta Take up the pieces and throw them away. Just like that, Miss Shirley, Mum. Take up the pieces and throw them away. As if it wasn't her grandmother's bowl from England. She isn't well and I feel awful bad about it. She's got nobody to look after her but me. the IV's eyes brimmed up with tears. Anne patted the little brown paw holding the cracked pink cup sympathetically. "'I think Miss Lavender needs a change, Charlotte. She stays here alone too much. Can't we induce her to go away for a little trip?' Charlotte shook her head with its rampant bows disconsolately. "'I don't think so, Miss Shelley, Mom. Miss Lavender hates visiting.' She's only got three relations she ever visits and she says she just goes to see them as family duty. Last time, when she come home, she said she wasn't going to visit for family duty no more. I've come home in love with loneliness, Charlotte, she says to me. I never want to stray from my own vine and fig tree again. My relations try so hard to make an old lady of me and it has a bad effect on me. Just like that, Miss Shirley, Mom. It has a very bad effect on me, so I don't think it would do any good to coax her to go visiting. We must see what can be done, said Anne decidedly, as she put the last possible berry in her pink cup. Just as soon as I have my vacation, I'll come through and spend a whole week with you. We'll have a picnic every day and pretend all sorts of interesting things and see if we can't cheer Miss Lavender up. Oh, that will be the very thing, Miss Shirley, Mum, exclaimed Charlotte IV in rapture. She was glad for Miss Lavender's sake, and for her own too. With a whole week in which to study Anne constantly, she would surely be able to learn how to move and behave like her. When the girls got back to Echo Lodge, they found that Miss Lavender and Paul had carried the little square table out of the kitchen to the garden and had everything ready for tea. Nothing ever tasted so delicious as those strawberries and cream, eaten under a great blue sky, all curdled over with fluffy little white clouds, and in the long shadows of the wood, with its lispings and murmurings. After tea, Anne helped Charlotta wash the dishes in the kitchen, while Miss Lavender sat on the stone bench with Paul and heard all about his rock people. She was a good listener, this sweet Miss Lavender, but just as the last it struck Paul that she had suddenly lost interest in the twin sailors... Miss Lavender, why do you look at me like that? He asked gravely. How do I look, Paul? Just as if you were looking through me at somebody I put you in mind of, said Paul, who had such occasional flashes of uncanny insight that it wasn't quite safe to have secrets when he was about. You do put me in mind of somebody, somebody I knew long ago said Miss Lavender dreamily. When you were young? Yes, when I was young. Do I seem very old to you, Paul? Do you know, I can't make up my mind about that, said Paul confidentially. Your hair looks old. I never knew a young person with white hair. Your eyes are as young as my beautiful teachers when you laugh. Tell you what, Miss Lavender? Paul's voice and face were as solemn as a judge's. I think you would make a splendid mother. You have just the right look in your eyes. The look my little mother always had. I think it's a pity you haven't any boys of your own. Have a little dream, boy, Paul. Paul? "'Oh, have you really? How old is he? About your age, I think. He ought to be older because I have dreamt of him long before you were born. But I never let him get any older than eleven or twelve, because if I did, someday he might grow up altogether, and I'd lose him.' "'I know,' nodded Paul. "'That's the beauty of dream people. They stay any age you want them.' you and my beautiful teacher and me myself are the only folks in the world that I know of that have dream people. Isn't it funny and nice we should all know each other? But I guess that kind of people always find each other out. Grandma never has had dream people and Mary Jo thinks I'm wrong in the upper story because I have them. But I think it's splendid to have them, you know Miss Lavender. Tell me about your little dream boy. He has blue eyes and curly hair. He steals in and wakens me with a kiss every morning. And all day he plays here in the garden. And I play with him. Such games as we have. We run races and talk with the echoes. I tell him stories. And when twilight comes... "'I know,' interrupted Paul eagerly. "'He comes and sits beside you, so, because, of course, at twelve he'd be too big to climb into your lap "'and lays his head on your shoulder, so, and you put your arms about him "'and hold him tight, tight, and rest your cheek on his head. "'Yes, that's the very way. "'Oh, you do know Miss Lavender.' Anne found the two of them there when she came out of the stone house, and something in Miss Lavender's face made her hate to disturb them. I'm afraid we must go, Paul, if we want to get home before dark. Miss Lavender, I'm going to invite myself to Echo Lodge for a whole week pretty soon. If you come for a week, I'll keep you for two, threatened Miss Lavender. Chapter 28 The Prince Comes Back to the Enchanted Palace The last day of school came and went. A triumphant semi-annual examination was held, and Anne's pupils acquitted themselves splendidly. At the close, they gave her an address and a writing desk and all the girls and ladies present cried and some of the boys had cast it up to them later on that they cried too, although they always denied it. Mrs. Harmon Andrews, Mrs. Peter Sloan and Mrs. William Bell walked home together and talked things over. I do think it is such a pity Anne is leaving when the children seem so much attached to her sighed Mrs. Peter Sloan, who had a habit of sighing over everything, and even finished off her jokes that way. To be sure, she added hastily, we all know we'll have a good teacher next year too. Hmm. Jane will do her duty, I've no doubt, said Mrs. Andrews rather stiffly. I don't suppose she'll tell the children quite so many fairy tales or spend so much time roaming about the woods with them, but she has her name on the inspector's roll of honour and the Newbridge people are in a terrible state over her leaving. I'm real glad Anne is going to college, said Mrs. Bell. She's always wanted it and it would be a splendid thing for her. Well, I don't know. Mrs. Andrews was determined not to agree fully with anybody that day. I don't see that Anne needs any more education. She'll probably be marrying Gilbert Blythe, if his infatuation for her lasts till he gets through college. And what good will Latin and Greek do her then? If they taught you at college how to manage a man, there might be some sense in her going. Mrs. Harmon Andrews, so Avonlea gossip-whispered, had never learned how to manage her man and as a result, that Andrew's household was not exactly a model of domestic happiness. "'I see that the Charlottetown call to Mr. Allen is up before the presbytery,' said Mrs. Bell. "'That means we'll be losing him soon, I suppose.' "'Oh, they're not going before September,' said Mrs. Sloane. "'It'll be a great loss to the community, though I always did think that Mrs. Allen dressed rather too gay for a minister's wife.' but we are none of us perfect. Did you notice how neat and snug Mr. Harrison looked today? I never saw such a changed man. He goes to church every Sunday and has subscribed to the salary. (sighs) Hasn't that Paul Irving grown to be a big boy? Said Mrs. Andrews. He was such a mite for his age when he came here. I declare I hardly knew him today. It's going to look a lot like his father. He's a smart boy, said Mrs. Bell. He's smart enough, but... Mrs. Andrews lowered her voice. I believe he tells queer stories. Gracie came home from school one day last week with the greatest rigmarole he had told her about people who lived down at the shore. Stories there couldn't be a word of truth in, you know. I told Gracie not to believe him, and she said Paul didn't intend her to. But if he didn't, what did he tell them to her for? Anne says Paul is a genius, said Mrs. Sloan. He may be. You never know what to expect of them Americans, said Mrs. Andrews. Mrs. Andrews' only acquaintance with the word genius was derived from the colloquial fashion of calling any eccentric individual a queer genius. She probably thought, with Mary Jo, that it meant a person with someone wrong in his upper story. Back in the schoolroom, Anne was sitting alone at her desk as she had sat on the very first day of school two years before. Her face, leaning on her hand, her dewy eyes looking wistfully out the window to the lake of shining waters. Her heart was so wrung over the parting with her pupils that for a moment, college had lost all its charm. She still felt the clasp of Annette Bell's arm about her neck and heard the childish wail, I'll never love any teacher as much as you, Miss Shirley, never, never. For two years she had worked earnestly and faithfully, making many mistakes and learning from them. She had had her reward. She had taught her scholars something, but she still felt that they had taught her much more. Lessons of tenderness, self-control, innocent wisdom, love of childish hearts, Perhaps she had not succeeded in inspiring any wonderful ambitions in her pupils, but she had taught them more by her own sweet personality than by her careful precepts that it was good and necessary in the years that were before them to live their lives finely and graciously, holding fast to truth and courtesy and kindness, keeping aloof from all that savored of falsehood and meanness and vulgarity. They were perhaps all unconscious of having learned such lessons, but they would remember and practice them long after they had forgotten the capital of Afghanistan and the dates of the Wars of the Roses. Another chapter in my life is closed, said Anne aloud as she locked her desk. She really felt very sad over it, but the romance in the idea of that closed chapter did comfort her a little. Anne spent a fortnight at Echo Lodge early in her vacation, and everybody concerned had a good time. She took Miss Lavender on a shopping expedition to town and persuaded her to buy an organdy dress then came the excitement of cutting it and making it together, while the happy Charlotte IV the Fourth basted and swept up clippings. Miss Lavender had complained that she could not feel much interest in anything, but the sparkle came back to her eyes over the pretty dress. What foolish, frivolous person I must be, she sighed. I am wholesomely ashamed to think that a new dress, even if it is a forget-me-not organda, should exhilarate me so, and a good conscience and an extra contribution to foreign missions couldn't do it. Midway in her visit, Anne went home to Green Gables for a day to mend the twin stockings and settle up Davy's accumulated store of questions. In the evening, She went down to the shore road to see Paul Irving. As she passed by the low, square window of the Irving sitting room, she caught a glimpse of Paul on somebody's lap. But the next moment, he came flying through the hall. Oh, Miss Shirley, he said excitedly. You can't think what has happened. Something so splendid. Father is here. Just think of that father is here. Come right in. Father, this is my beautiful teacher, you know, father. Stephen Irving came forward to meet Anne with a smile. He was a tall, handsome man of middle age with iron-grey hair, deep-set, dark blue eyes, and a strong, sad face, splendidly modelled about chin and brow just the face for a hero of romance, Anne thought with a thrill of intense satisfaction. It was so disappointing to meet someone who ought to be a hero and find him bald or stooped or otherwise lacking in manly beauty. Anne would have thought it dreadful if the object of Miss Lavender's romance had not looked the part. So... This is my son's beautiful teacher, of whom I have heard so much, said Mr. Irving with a hearty handshake. Paul's letters have been so full of you, Miss Shelley, that I feel as if I were pretty well acquainted with you already. I want to thank you for what you have done for Paul. I think that your influence has been just what he needed. Mother is one of the best and dearest of women, but her Matter of fact, a Scotch common sense could not always understand a temperament like my laddie's. What was lacking in her, you have supplied. Between you, I think Paul's training in these last two years has been as nearly ideal as a motherless boy's could be. Everybody likes to be appreciated. Under Mr. Irving's praise, Anne's face burst flower-like into rosy bloom, and the busy, weary man of the world, looking at her, thought he had never seen a fairer, sweeter slip of girlhood than this little down-east schoolteacher with her red hair and wonderful eyes. Paul sat between them, blissfully happy. I never dreamt father was coming he said radiantly. Even Grandma didn't know. It was a great surprise. As a general thing, Paul shook his brown curls gravely. I don't like to be surprised. You lose all the fun of expecting things when you're surprised. But in a case like this, it's all right. Father came last night after I had gone to bed, and after Grandma and Mary Jo had stopped being surprised, he and Grandma came upstairs to look at me, not meaning to wake me till morning. But I woke up bright and saw Father tell you I just sprang on him. With a hug like a bear's, said Mr. Irving, putting his arms around Paul’s shoulder smilingly. "I hardly knew my boy, he had grown so big, and brown and sturdy. I don't know which was the most pleased to see father, grandma or I, continued Paul. Grandma's been in the kitchen all day making things father likes to eat. She wouldn't trust them to marry Joe, she says. That's her way of showing gladness. I like best just to sit and talk to Father. But I'm going to leave you a little while now if you excuse me. I must get the cows for Mary Jo. That's one of my daily duties. When Paul had scampered away to do his daily duty, Mister Irving talked to Anne of various matters, but Anne felt that he was thinking of something else underneath all the time. Presently, it came to the surface. In Paul's last letter, he spoke of going with you to visit an older, uh, a friend of mine, Miss Lewis, at the Stone House in Grafton. Do you know her well? Yes, indeed. She's a very dear friend of mine, was Anne's demure reply, which gave no hint of the sudden thrill tingled over from her from head to foot at Mr. Irving's question. Anne felt instinctively that romance was peeping at her around a corner. Mr. Irving rose and went to the window, looking out on a great, golden, billowing sea where a wild wind was harping. For a few moments, there was silence in the little dark walled room. Then he turned and looked down into Anne's sympathetic face with a smile, half tender. I wonder how much you know, he said. I know all about it replied Anne promptly. You see, she explained hastily, Miss Lavender and I are very intimate. She wouldn't tell things of such a sacred nature to everybody. We are kindred spirits. Yes, I believe you are. Well, I'm going to ask a favor of you, I would like to go and see Miss Lavender if she would let me. Will you ask her if I may come? Would she not? Oh, indeed she would. Yes, this was romance. The very, the real thing, with all the charm of rhyme and story and dream. It was a little belated, perhaps, like a rose blooming in October, which should have bloomed in June. But nonetheless, a rose, all sweetness and fragrance, with the gleam of gold in its heart. Never did Anne's feet bear her on a more willing errand than on that walk through the beech woods to Grafton the next morning. She found Miss Lavender in the garden. Anne was fearfully excited. Her hands grew cold and her voice trembled. Miss Lavender, I have something to tell you. Something very important. Can you guess what it is? Anne never supposed that Miss Lavender could guess, but Miss Lavender's face grew very pale, and Miss Lavender said in a quiet, still voice, from which all the colour and sparkle that Miss Lavender's voice usually suggested had faded. Stephen Irving is home. How did you know... Who told you? cried Anne, disappointedly, vexed that her great revelation had been anticipated. Nobody. I knew that must be it, just from the way you spoke. Well, he wants to come and see you, said Anne. May I send him word that he may? Yes, yes, of course, fluttered Miss Lavender. There's no reason why he shouldn't only coming as any old friend might. Anne had her own opinion about that as she hastened into the house to write a note at Miss Lavender's desk. Oh, it's a delightful thing to be living in a storybook, she thought gaily. It will come out all right, of course. It must. And Paul will have a mother after his own heart and everybody will be happy, But Mr. Irving will take Miss Lavender away. And dear knows what will happen to the little stone house. And so there's two sides to it, as there seems to be to everything in this world. The important note was written, and Anne herself carried it to the Grafton Post Office, where she waylaid the mail carrier and asked him to leave it at the Avonlea office. It's so very important, Anne assured him anxiously. The mail carrier was a rather grumpy old personage who did not at all look the part of the messenger of Cupid, and Anne was none too certain that his memory was to be trusted, but he said he would do his best to remember and that she had to be contented with that. Charlotte IV felt that some nasty mystery pervaded the stone house that afternoon, a mystery from which she was excluded. Miss Lavender roamed about the garden in a distracted fashion. Anne, too, seemed possessed by a demon of unrest and walked to and fro and went up and down. Charlotte IV endured it till patience ceased to be a virtue. Then she confronted Anne on the occasion of that romantic young person's third, aimless, peregnation through the kitchen. "'Please, Miss Shirley, Mum,' said Charlotte IV, with an indignant toss of her very blue bows. "'It's plain to be seen. You and Miss Lavender have got a secret.' I think begging your pardon if I'm too forward Miss Shirley mum that it's real mean not to tell me when we've all been such chums oh Charlotta, dear I'd have told you all about it if it were my secret but it's Miss Lavender's you see however I'll tell you this much and if nothing comes of it you must never breathe a word about it to a living soul you see Prince Charming is coming tonight. He came long ago, but in a foolish moment went away and wandered afar and forgot the secret of the magic pathway to the enchanted castle, where the princess was weeping her faithful heart out for him. But at last he remembered it again, and the princess is waiting still, because nobody but her own dear prince could carry her off. Oh, Miss Shirley, Mum, what is that prose? gasped the mystified Charlotta. Anne laughed. <laughs> In prose, an old friend of Miss Lavender's is coming to see her tonight. Do you mean the old beau of hers? demanded the literal Charlotta. That is probably what I do mean. In prose, answered Anne gravely. It is Paul's father. Stephen Irving. Goodness knows what will come of it, but let us hope for the best, Charlotta. I hope that he'll marry Miss Lavender, was Charlotta's unequivocal response. Some women's intended from the start to be old maids. I'm afraid I'm one of them, Miss Shirley, Mom, because I've an awful little patience with men. But Miss Lavender never was, and I've been awful worried thinking what on earth she would do when I got so big I'd have to go to Boston. There ain't any more girls in our family, dear knows what she'd do if she got some stranger that might laugh at her pretendings and leave things lying round out of their place and not be willing to be called Charlotte V. She might get someone who wouldn't be as unlucky as me in breaking dishes. She'd never get anyone who'd love her better. And the faithful little handmaiden dashed to the oven door with a sniff. They went through the form of having tea as usual that night at Echo Lodge, but nobody was really eating anything. After tea, Miss Lavender went to her room and put on her new Forget Me Not Organdy while Anne did her hair for her. Both were dreadfully excited, but Miss Lavender pretended to be very calm and indifferent. I must really mend that rent in the curtain tomorrow, she said anxiously, inspecting it as if it were the only thing of any importance just then. Those curtains may not have worn as well as they should, considering the price I paid. Oh dear me, Charlotte has forgotten to dust the stair railing again. I really must speak to her about it. Anne was sitting on the porch steps when Stephen Irving came down the lane and across the garden. This is the one place where time stands still, he said, looking around him with delighted eyes. There is nothing changed about this house or garden since I was here 25 years ago. Makes me feel young again. You know, time always does stand still in an enchanted place, said Anne seriously. It's only when the prince comes that things begin to happen. Mr. Irving smiled a little sadly into her uplifted face, all a star with its youth and promise. Sometimes the prince comes too late, he said. He did not ask Anne to translate her remark into prose. Like all kindred spirits, he understood. Oh no, not if he's the real prince, coming to the true princess, said Anne, shaking her head decidedly as she opened the parlour door. When he had gone in, she shut it tightly behind him and turned to confront Charlotte IV, who was in the hall all nods and becks and wreathed smiles. Oh, Miss Shirley, Mum, she breathed. I peeked from the kitchen window, but he's awful handsome, just the right age for Miss Lavender. Oh, Miss Shirley, Mum, do you think it would be much harm to listen at the door? It would be dreadful, Charlotta," said Anne firmly so just you come away with me out of the reach of temptation. I can't do anything, and it's awful to hang around just waiting, sighed Charlotta. What if you don't propose after all, Miss Shirley, Mum? You can never be sure of them men. My older sister, Charlotte I, thought she was engaged to one once, but it turned out he had a different opinion, and she says she'll never trust one of them again and I heard of another case where a man thought he wanted one girl awful bad when it was really her sister he wanted all the time. When a man don't know his own mind, Miss Shirley, Mum, how's a poor woman going to be sure of it? We'll go into the kitchen and clean the silver spoons, said Anne. That's a task which won't require much thinking, fortunately, for I couldn't think tonight, and it will pass the time. It passed an hour. Then, just as Anne laid down the last shining spoon, they heard the front door shut. Both sought comfort, fearfully in each other's eyes. Oh, Miss Shirley, Mum. If he's going away this early, there's nothing into it and never will be. They flew to the window. Mr. Irving had no intention of going away. He and Miss Lavender were strolling slowly down the middle path to the stone bench. Oh, Miss Shirley, Mum, he's got his arm around her waist, whispered Charlotta IV delightedly. He must have proposed to her or she'd never allow it. Anne caught Charlotte IV by her own plump waist and danced her around the kitchen until they were both out of breath. Oh, Charlotta," she said gaily. "'I'm neither a prophetess nor the daughter of a prophetess, "'but I'm going to make a prediction. "'There'll be a wedding in this old stone house "'before the maple leaves are red. "'Do you want that translated into prose, Charlotta? "'No, I can understand that,' said Charlotte. "'A wedding ain't poetry.' Why, Miss Shirley, Mum, you're crying. What for? Oh, because it's all so beautiful. Storybookish and romantic. And sad, said Anne, winking the tears out of her eyes. It's all perfectly lovely. But there's a little sadness mixed up in it too, somehow. Of course... "'There's a risk in marrying anybody,' conceded Charlotte IV. "'But when all's said and done, Miss Shirley, Mum, "'there's many a worse thing than her husband.' Thank you.